Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and we're here to look back at yet another incredible week from Felix Auger-Aliassime, who won his third consecutive ATP title as he reigned supreme at the Basel Open Swiss Indoors Tournament. And Mike, you also secured a fantastic interviewer uh, interview with uh, one of the best commentators in our game today and a former champion as well. Yeah, we got Pam Shriver back on the podcast, back on Matchpoint Canada. And Although I feel like we could spend the whole episode just talking about Felix Ocialiasim and and how well he's been playing lately, uh, Pam and I definitely got into that, and and that was a big topic of conversation. So, a great guest to have back on the show, given her extensive history, not just as a player and all the accolades as a singles and double star in the WTA, but certainly in her role now as one of the most respected voices in the sport. And then we'll also look ahead to this week, which is the WTA Finals. Uh, in Texas and kind of go through the top eight women who are there and and share our thoughts as well as Canadian Gabby Dabrowski who's they're in doubles, I should say, as per usual, it feels like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's becoming the norm to have Gabby in the, the final eight uh, end of tour finals for the WTA finals happening in Fort Worth, Texas and getting underway. Also have the final Masters 1000 event of the season on the men's side with the Paris Masters. Uh, Rafael Nadal making his return, Novak Djokovic there and our uh, two lead Canadians. But before we jump into all that, ATP action with uh, what Felix did and Mike, you and Pam do touch on it. Uh, Mike, here's your conversation with analyst Pam Shriver. Today's guest is a repeat visitor to Matchpoint Canada and her introduction alone could take up much of the episode thanks to her incredible tennis resume. She was a mainstay in the top 10 of the women's singles game for most of the 1980s won a stunning 21 major women's doubles titles, and had a professional career that spanned 20 years. After retiring, she's made a name for herself as one of the marquee tennis analysts and someone I've always enjoyed listening to. Pam Shriver, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Mike, thanks for having me. And um, I guess it's virtually like visiting a country that I love and I haven't been to in a few years. But um, hello to everyone north of the border in Canada. Well, we appreciated your visit with us a few years back, a couple of years back with my co-host Ben Lewis. And as I said to you, sort of before we hit record, today's my turn. So I'm pretty excited. And um, you told me a few days ago that this weekend was a busy one for you as your kids, I believe, were playing in an under 18 tournament. So how did that work out for them? And, and how easy is it for you to switch from tennis analyst to tennis parent? Well, it was really interesting yesterday because it was the first time my boys had played in a sanctioned tournament together. Um, and my oldest boy, who played a lot in the 12s and the beginnings of the 14s, was really is really the of my three kids, the one with the most talent. But he decided to give it. He gave it up like right before uh, COVID started. He's just started to play again. And so while he's still 18, the boys decided to play some tournaments together. So the one they played yesterday was starting pretty high up. It's the Southern California doubles sectionals. So it's like all the best players. So they were a little overmatched as far as um, the tournament goes and to start off, but they had a great time. I was really proud of them for not, they, they just, the moms of the opponents even came up to me afterwards, not knowing who I was, just said, your boys were so supportive of each other. And, you know, it was all the things you want to see as a mom. So on one level, the score and the result wasn't great, but what I watched from them, I was really proud. Right on. And, and the other tennis parents didn't recognize you. Is that right? Or were they just playing coy? You know? <laughs> I had the hat. Some Got did. It. 
Some it. did, but um, I kind of keep cool. I kind of keep low key at those things. Yeah, well, I can relate. I was coaching uh, hockey all morning today and and yesterday as well, so uh, busy supporting my kiddos. And it was cool that we kind of just connected there. That uh, you've got boy and girl twins and an older boy as well, which is the same family dynamic that uh, that I have. Yes, and the only thing I believe is different is um, you are married and I'm divorced and and that makes a big difference. And if, it, you know, in any partnership, whether it's on the doubles court or in, in a household, the partnerships are so important. So yeah, that, I, really, that really helps the kids. Well, my respect to you, because I couldn't imagine doing it without someone there with me. And uh, I mean, my, my hair left me with all the stress of those twins with a partner helping me. So <laughs> I can't imagine if yeah. I didn't have that. Um, wanted to start with you with some WTA action as the uh, women's tour is coming to an end in 2022. WTA finals are happening this week in Texas. Uh, and really, aside from a blip at Wimbledon and then the Toronto-Cincinnati back-to-back, Igis Fiontek has been such a dominant force in the women's game. She won her most recent event in San Diego. Um, do you feel she's going to be pretty tough for any of the other seven to uh, to take down this week? Yeah, I think clearly she starts the favorite um, based on how she recovered uh, after you mentioned that little span between, you know, Wimbledon and just before the U.S. Open. She's once again, like back to her dominant self. Um, I was actually able to see her play in person in San Diego. I drove down and I saw her mostly when I watched her play. It was in the finals uh, against Donna Vekic when at a set of piece, the afterburners went on. And this is what Shviantek's become so good at is in finals or in big moments, just being able to separate. Um, so I think she starts the favorite, although indoors you can get some great servers like Garcia or if Sabalenka fires on all cylinders, you know, indoors, I think will help the field more than it will help Iga. Right, good point, good point. Now, if, if we go back to, say, the start of this year, if anyone had asked you to predict the final eight, who in that final eight group is the most surprising to you to have made it? I know for myself, the resurgence of Caroline Garcia has been really cool to watch. Uh, Coco Goff, not that I'm surprised she's there, but just how quickly her ascent sort of took place this year, both in singles and doubles. But uh, who among those women to you uh, was uh, kind of the, the the more shocking or surprising or or Cinderella story of them, perhaps? Well, I'll actually bring up something that I think is truly remarkable. Uh, given January, and I was working for Tennis Channel on a, one of the Australian Open lead-up tournaments. I believe it was in Adelaide. And to have seen Sabalenka's yips and the seriousness of how horrendous they were. I mean, a player who'd been two in the world, I think she was currently two in the world at the start of the year, who could hardly get a serve in play. And I, and I was I was working with Jimmy Arias at the time when we saw uh, probably the worst of some of her matches, like 20-some-odd double faults, uh, having to serve underarm. Couldn't even get an underarm serve in. So... I think Sabalenka from the start of the year, while she's still having some problems with the serve, but the fact that she was able, able to persevere, be that resilient, and also the fact that, you know, obviously anyone from either, you know, Ukraine is the worst, but obviously this whole, you know, the world, horrendous world events of the war has affected, I think, players also from Belarus and Russia in a tough way. So I, I think Sabalenka's shown a lot of grit to get to this final eight. Yeah, well said, well said. Did, did you ever go through a period in your career where your serve kind of let you down like that and became such a, 
an issue for you like it was for Sabalenka? Nothing like that. I mean, yes, I did. First, I, I always I tell a story because I think it's an interesting one. The first 10 years of my career, I never remember having a missed toss. I never remember tossing it anything other than perfect, like right where I wanted it. And then this one nondescript tour level match it was actually here in where I live in Los Angeles. It wasn't even a big deal. It was against an opponent I'd never lost to. I didn't, I didn't quite understand. I didn't feel that much pressure. All of a sudden I went to toss and it was a little bit off. Not, not as off as what Sabalenka experienced, but it wasn't right where it had been like my whole career. And I was like, what? And honestly, from that day forward, it was a question mark and it caused anxiety. Um, it got worse as I got um, older. It was really bad on my shoulder because we all know if the toss is, you know, isn't where it's supposed to be. And I think Shababalov, you know, from Canada has suffered from some of these issues with the service toss. So nothing like what Sabalenka experienced, but I did experience a bit of it. And, and not able to get it ever back to what it was like for the first 10 years there? No, never. I mean, there'll be some matches where it was actually pretty good and it didn't, cause that much stress but we're talking about going from never remembering a bad toss to like as you bounce the ball saying oh God, i hope this i hope this goes up in the right spot right i mean right. that is not the way that's not the way to start a serve yeah i mean i can only relate as the tennis hack that i am but my serve is definitely the hardest part for me and especially when i've had a layoff and not been out there in a while i get back and it's almost like it's a foreign concept to me like i've never done it before um, but it, it's always interesting to me to think of professionals having those kind of issues and challenges as well, because we just think, well, you've been doing it so many times for so many years, but it's that mental, right? You need like the all yeah. confidence in it. I well, guess. and listen, it's, it's got everything going, right? All the limbs are trying to work together. The left and the right arm are doing very different things. Uh, and that's never easy. It's like rubbing, tapping your head and rubbing your stomach. I mean, it's, Gets, it's easy to get it out of sync. It takes a ton of repeti repetition. Um, but I think that tennis at the grassroots level has to make underarm serving more acceptable um, for people who just, it's, it's a, it can be a blockade to serve. Like it, it, it doesn't make it fun for some people who just, they didn't maybe do a lot of throwing as a young person. So I, I just think tennis needs to, um, you know, and I think it's gotten better where underarm serving is acceptable because what's happened on the pro tour, but I'm, I'm all for having another option if right. you can't get the overhead going. Right. Interesting. I mean, I remember when I was young watching tennis, the Michael Chang uh, underarm there at the French Open, that was a very rare and shocking kind of thing to see. But you're right. Nowadays, you do see it a little bit more often. Uh, one thing we don't see as often, perhaps, is professional tennis players who are kicking butt both in singles and in doubles, which was something that you did so well throughout your career. And, um, you know, I want to ask you, was, was that for you something that you just enjoyed both those avenues so much that you couldn't imagine not playing doubles along with your singles play? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, my only junior national title was in doubles. Um, I always loved to play doubles, even going back to some of my earliest memories at our, our club where I grew up playing. You know, there's a lot of parent-child doubles tournaments, a lot of regular doubles tournaments, and the way I played my singles game, which was to serve volley and to chip and charge back in the day, it really was suited. It's exactly how you played your doubles. So, I mean, singles and doubles for me, it was hardly any transition except I, I had 
you know, you had the double zallies and you had somebody all alongside you. And obviously my big break came in fall of 1980 when I got the phone call from Martina Navratilova were asking whether or not I'd start to play doubles with her beginning in uh, January of 81. How do you and say no start- to that, right? <laughs> you don't, you yeah. don't. Well, and, and I was fortunate because my partner had just retired and we had gotten the finals of the U.S. Open losing to Martina and Billie Jean. So I actually didn't have yet a committed partner. I didn't, I didn't have to dump somebody for Martina. I didn't actually have a partner, which made it a little easier. Right. Although you probably would have dumped somebody for Martina. I think I probably would have. And they they might have understood too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And now we see at the WTA finals that Coco Goff and Jessica Pagula, who have both had such incredible single seasons, but also as a tandem in doubles, we saw them win here in my hometown of Toronto together. Um, They're doing, uh, well, pun intended, I guess, double duty at the uh, tour finals. How impressive is it to see uh, what, what they've accomplished this year in both those avenues? It's been great. It's like a throwback, right? To I don't know when it's happened on the men's side. It's probably been since Kafelnikov or McEnroe or who knows. Um, but I think it's tremendous. And I think uh, Pagula, obviously, her year has been unbelievably consistent. She's obviously a late bloomer. But and then you have her paired with Coco, 10 years younger. Um, and they're obviously you know, feeding off each other's energy and and experience levels. And it's particularly impressive how I think the doubles has proven to help Coco. Um, And I think the pattern, you could go a list of players that actually had early success in doubles before singles and it really, you know, helped their singles. So I think Coco is a great example of it's good to play both. I want to, uh, switch gears because we got so many questions on both uh, we've done the women's tour i want to talk about the men's tour with you as well um although we're very excited to see how things play out at the wta finals here uh the men's game a couple more tournaments to go still before those uh final eight emerge uh felix orgiali has seemed doing everything in his power to make that final eight something that didn't look like it was going to happen if we went back to say the u.s open where he was kind of struggling to get his game going Look at what he's done the past three weeks. A third consecutive tournament win for him now in, in Basel, defeating Holger Rune. Took out world number one, Carlos Alcaraz, uh, in the semifinals. He's beat the Spaniard a couple of times now this fall. Um, I don't even have a specific question for you here. I just want to say, Felix Ojealiasim, discuss uh, you know what you've okay. seen from him lately. Well, I was fortunate enough to work for Tennis Channel during Labor Cup in the play-by-play position. So I observed him on that final day. Um, and I, I really felt like, you know, there were some things that must have happened. I mean, I was calling it from Santa Monica and obviously the event was in London. Um, but I spoke to somebody on the inside there that said that Felix really was like a sponge at the Labor Cup and picked up some good insights from teammates and from his coaches. And he's kind of doing what Contevite did last year, right? Kind of run the table in order to qualify. Um, but the way he's done it, it's been tremendous. It's obviously his serve. Not Tennis can be made so much easier. I know earlier on the pod, we spoke about the serve um, and the way he's been serving. It's just been outrageously good. And it takes the pressure off the rest of his game. I think 86, pretty, 86 consecutive holds or something like that. Crazy. I mean, that's like Sampras at Wimbledon back in the day. Now, listen, indoors... That was always like my two favorite surfaces was grass or indoors. Give me either one anytime. And my, my serve could really do a, a lot more damage than it could in others. And I feel like, you know, obviously Felix being from Canada, he's played a ton of indoor tennis. 
Um, so he's extremely comfortable and he's hitting his targets, you know, and it's something I feel like players need to do even better. Look at what Felix, like literally you can almost see him a target with a serve on a dime. He can serve it to all four corners into the body. I, I just, I love his action. And I think the rest of his game is lifted because of the serve. His season this year um, took a little bit of a step back at the slam level. Uh, the year before he made, I believe it was quarters of Wimbledon, semis of U.S. Open. This year uh, advanced to the quarters of the Aussie Open, but otherwise was kind of disappointing for him. The way he's playing right now, and here in Canada, we've only ever had one singles uh, Grand Slam champ, which was Bianca Andrescu a few years ago in New York. Do you think the way he's playing now puts him on that map? I mean, he's in the top 10, so obviously he's a he's a contender. But do you think this gives him the confidence, the belief, the way he's playing, that he can do some damage at a slam in the coming year? Absolutely. I think for him to have witnessed what Alcaraz did at the U.S. Open, um, this era of, of talented young ATP tour players, they're coming in at the right time They're because, you know, the big three no longer exist, right? Federer retiring. Nadal, I think it's very questionable whether he's going to finish next year. I, I think he's nearer the end than what, you know, maybe a lot of people think. Um, and then I think Djokovic is going to be the only one left um, that can play a few more years at the highest level. So what it means is there's going to be so many more opportunities in the next five years uh, to win majors. And I see no reason, given Felix's trajectory, his maturity, um, his ability to be that sponge and to soak up, whether it's information from John McEnroe, Patrick McEnroe, watch what's going on on the other side, Team Europe. Um, so, yeah, he'd be on the top of my list of uh, people to win majors in the next year or two that has not yet won one. His buddy, Denis Shapovalov, also having a strong week, making the finals in Vienna, losing to Danil Medvedev. Uh, ben and I are going to discuss that a little further when we kind of do the rest of the podcast episode. But the two of them certainly seem to be peaking as Davis Cup approaches. And if we package them with Bianca and Layla Annie on the female side, and I'm looking a little bit down the road, but the United Cup, which was just announced, which is going to be a, a combined men's and women's event starting in January, kind of like a throwback to the Hopman Cup, except there's going to be ranking points here too, I believe. Um, what, what do you think when you look at Canada in terms of the strength of our, now we don't have the depth, of course, of a country like the U.S., and these are the only players we have really in the top 50 right now. But what damage do you think Canada can do on the international level if they put those two women and those two men together? Oh, I think they'd have as good a chance, assuming all four are healthy and playing well. Um, yeah, I think they have a good a chance as any country to win the first United Cup. I think it's an exciting event. I think, you know, the tennis world, most of us were like, What? How can the Hopman Cup be gone? It took, you know, quite a few years to get get something back. Um, I've been talking to some players whose countries qualify, and there's a lot of excitement around this event. Um, so, yeah, look out for Canada. Obviously, U.S., as you mentioned, it's going to have a really good chance as well. Um, yeah, and if Radicanu is healthy, the way Great Britain is on the men's side now, I mean, it's, it's going to be fun to see. Yeah, I'm super excited when I heard it. Like, I was really sad when the Hopman Cup disappeared. And then they had the ATP Cup, which was fine, international, but only the men. And I kind of missed, there's only so many opportunities where you have the men and the women together and you can promote the sport with them side by side. Um, so, yeah, I'm pretty stoked to see what, what that looks like in January. Yeah, men and women competing together, playing at the same tournaments, playing mixed doubles. 
that's part of the reason why tennis has been distinctive for so many decades. Um, other sports, funny enough, are starting to pick up on it. Um, and you see, like the last Winter Olympic Games, I couldn't believe how many mixed gender medal sports there were, whether it was mixed, I don't know, snowboarding or obviously pairs, figure skating has been around forever and ice dancing. Um, so I guess skating probably is the other sport where, you know, at the highest level, men and women have competed for, you know, gold or for major championships. To uh, sort of wind things down here with you, I've got a uh, mixed gender question in that uh, two players, one male, one female, who both decided to hang up their rackets this year and, and leave the sport. And, and you know, tennis will never be the same. And I feel like that's been said in previous generations, too. But I feel in this instance, it really does apply because Serena Williams and Roger Federer were just so remarkable for their on and off court contributions. I wanted to get your take on their respective farewells, how they chose to end their playing careers for Serena. It was that inspiring first week in Flushing Meadows and for Roger at his uh, very own creation, the Labour Cup, being surrounded by so many of his peers. Uh, how did you feel in terms of uh, the way that they've exited their uh, their playing careers? I thought given the circumstances and their previous 12 to 18 months of dealing with injuries and not competing, I actually thought they both chose appropriate and really memorable ways to retire, I mean, or evolve. Um, you know, Serena's sort of thrown some interesting quotes out there. It's really hard for tennis players to totally let it go. I'm not surprised she's saying what she's saying. I don't still don't think she's coming back. Right. But like, I, it was a joy to watch her three matches at the US Open, four if you count the doubles that was played prime time with Venus. Um, it was just a joy to see the crowd react and appreciate her 25 years and her record-breaking performances. Um, and then, you know, I think Roger did a really typical Roger unselfish thing. He knew before the U.S. Open that, you know, his knee wasn't good enough to get back out there. And he held his announcement until after the U.S. Open, um, which I thought was definitely the right thing to do. But obviously he had thought long and hard about, you know, the fact that if he couldn't come back and play singles, um, you know, what would be the best way to leave? And I think being surrounded by a team and an event that he helped create in a city, London, that's meant so much to him with all those Wimbledon championships and his year-end finals. Um, it was, it was, it was one of the most emotional scenes and it was a pleasure. It was one of the most probably one of the greatest broadcast assignments I've ever had was to be able to call that that Rogers last match playing alongside Rafa. I remember thinking I was kind of disappointed that it wasn't in a in a in a competitive more competitive kind of environment. But then as I watched it, I thought, no, you know what, this is perfect for him. He's getting carried on the shoulders of all the other great players of his generation, Novak and Rafa, the up and comers like Felix there too, to be able to enjoy that moment. And it, it seemed pretty perfect to me actually. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think he kind of had that vision. You know, he kind of knew what it would feel like to have be surrounded by his, you know, his rivals, his peers, his friends. And um, I thought it was a perfect send off. How tough a transition is that? I mean, for you, that was 1997, I believe. How difficult a decision was it to retire? And, and how were those first few months afterwards trying to maybe figure out what you were going to evolve into next there? Yeah, you know, it wasn't difficult for me. I mean, I, when I go back and look sometimes at my record uh, in the years leading up to retirement, I won very few singles matches. I was lucky in my, actually it's ironic where you're asking me about this because 
in my last tournament, I did get to the quarterfinals in my last two wins. First round, second round was over Canadians. Oh, um, no way. So, yeah. So my late husband who came watched because he knew it was my last tournament. He said after I lost in the quarters to Lisa Raymond, he goes, sweetie, you finished number one in Canada because I think <laughs> whoever I beat, I think it, they were one and two at the time. Patricia He Boulay was one of yeah, them. And yeah. they were the top two, whoever it was, they were top two in Canada. So that's how my late husband framed it was I finished number one in Canada. <laughs> There's that, that Canadian connection you'll have forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, uh, I was uh, such a big fan of tennis in the 80s, early 90s. That's when I was growing up and just hooked on the players and personalities and and you were one of them so it really meant a lot for me to have you on the podcast today and and I know my co-host Ben got to speak with you last time but I was pretty stoked and uh, I don't really get nervous or, or get goosebumps when I talk to current players but I always get a little bit excited when I talk to players from the past like you so thank you so much for joining us and uh, and for uh, enlightening us with your views today. Mike thanks for having me. Anytime. There you have it, Mike's interview with analyst Pam Shriver. I, I had to take a peek back, almost like forgetting how fantastic a champion she was, by the way. I feel like so we've good. been blessed so to speak good. to like some of the greatest doubles players ever because we've had Renee Stubbs, we've had Pam a couple times, Daniel Nestor, like um, incredible accolades. And, and now I, I think she's one of the premier broadcasters as well. And, you know, I had to go back and refresh my memory a bit because those were like earlier tennis memories for me. And like, I can't even remember last week, let alone, you know, 30 years ago, but uh, that's what I like to call my dad brain, you know, yeah. my kids keep me so busy. But uh, when I went back and looked, I mean, my goodness, first of all, 21 women's doubles grand slams. That's just utterly insane. And then on top of that, she was a top 10 mainstay on the WTA from like 1980 to 1988 in, in singles as well. So to be able to do those both simultaneously. And if we think to the eighties and who was winning the singles grand slams, there wasn't a whole lot up for grabs. I mean, we talk about the big three in men's tennis today or recent history, last 15 years anyways, for the women in the 1980s, I mean, you had Martina, who was still winning slams there for quite a while, obviously. Steffi Graf was utterly dominant. And then you had uh, Monica Seles come in towards the tail end there. There wasn't a whole lot left over for other people, save for, you know, I want to say Gabby Sabatini got a couple, Arantxa mm -hmm. sanchez Picario, But, you know, for Pam Shriver to be in the top 10 for such a sustained period of time, you think if it wasn't for Navratilova and Steffi Graf, she would have had a slew of slam uh, titles and singles as well. Yeah, the the door kind of shut uh, the same way we've seen it shut on the men's side uh, for, you know, a decade and a half by the big three of Federer, uh, Novak and Nadal. Similar circumstance, I think, in the 80s uh, through to the mid 90s before we had, you know, a difference in, in champions um, and more. I think we're moving towards obviously we've seen that on the women's side, a lot of different champions over the past five, 10 years. And perhaps it could happen on the men's side coming in 2023. And we can use that to segue into what Felix Ojeali Asim has accomplished um, the month of October. I'd argue to say maybe this is the greatest month a Canadian man has ever put up in singles in, in tennis history, what he's accomplished. First, it started off in Florence, winning the Forenza Open. Okay, impressive title, ATP 250. Um, very calm, cool, collected there. He went over to Antwerp, Belgium, 
won back-to-back titles, beating Sebastian Corder in the finals there to cap a second consecutive title. And now he pushes his match-winning streak to 13 in a row and collected five wins in Basel, defeating Holger Rune in the finals. He beat world number one Carlos Alcaraz for the second time in the past month and a half. He also beat him at Davis Cup. So this is an an exceptional stretch of tennis. And this is the best winning streak we've seen from a Canadian in singles uh, since Bianca Andrescu won National Bank Open, formerly Rogers Cup and U.S. Open back to back before the Asian tennis swing in 2019. I mean, Felix is on fire. Yeah, I was trying to compare this to other big, you know, streaks from Canadian singles players. And certainly, uh, you know, in terms of consecutive tournament victories, this has got to be, I don't have like my Greg Sharko stat brain working here, but you got to think that this is the first time a Canadian singles player has won three consecutive events. I would be shocked if it were otherwise. Uh, I look back a little bit through Milos Raonic and some of his career accomplishments, and he certainly had some titles. The finals in 2016 at Wimbledon stands out. But again, I couldn't find like a sustained stretch where he dominated like this. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, one one that came to mind was Jeannie Bouchard in 2014, and it wasn't necessarily three consecutive tournaments. But for me, the way that she performed at the Grand Slams, and we can talk about Felix and what we think, you know, he needs to do now at that that level in terms of having that kind of success. But for Jeannie to make, um, you know, what was it? Semis in Australia. Semis, semis at Roland Garros. Open, yep. Finals of Wimbledon. And then fourth round at the US Open. I mean, in terms of singles consistency, consistency at majors by Canadians, Still, no one has approached that level like we saw from Jeannie. And I think it's, uh, you know, nice to remember what she did, even though that was now quite a few years ago. Yeah. And uh, look, I I think it's a distinct possibility. I'm not going to say probability because the sport is so hard and and things change on the fly all all the time. But I think Felix Ojeel-Hassim is going to very quickly get in that conversation if we see the type of tennis we've seen from him in October to be contending for Grand Slams. I I think it's going to happen. I I don't want to put a specific timeline on it, but you feel like he's playing at a top five level. And uh, for anybody who's watched him this past month, I think the most impressive thing on these indoor fast surfaces, which certainly helps, he has 86 consecutive holds of surf. That's just an incredible statistic, which dates back um, almost the whole month you know, his last loss being in Astana and Kazakhstan to Roberto Bautista Gut, even dropping a set this past week to Mark Andrea Husler, it was in a tie break because uh, nobody could break his serve. Unbelievable serving. And when I was speaking with Pam, I mean, first of all, she's a big fan of Felix Ojeeliasim and a big believer in his Grand Slam chances in 2023. As I think many of us are starting to feel like that's the next logical progression is for him to take this level of play and translate it into best of five. Um, But, you know, Pam spoke of the vacuum that's kind of been left by the big three with Federer now retired, Nadal a little bit more uncertain, and and clearly the end is nearer uh, for him as well. Uh, And that there's going to be this, you know, this opportunity for the next level of players to come through, the younger players. Felix is definitely asserting himself right now. And she mentioned another previous real big champion in the men's game, Pete Sampras, and said that Felix is serving right now reminds her of clutch Pete Sampras at like Wimbledon in terms of how he always used to deliver. So some pretty kind comparisons there from Pam Shriver on uh, our 22 year old Canadian. 
<laughs> those are uh those are very very kind and big words to to get a serving comp to pete sampras uh and i i think that's she's hitting the nail on the head when she references the clutch factor i feel like anytime he's in a tough spot on serve he seems to come up with a big time serve uh to to get himself out of trouble and interestingly enough he's the last player actually in the season to defeat novak djokovic happened at the laver cup in straight sets uh Shifting over to Vienna before we get to Djokovic and Rafael Nadal returning. Um, Vienna Open, Denis Shapovalov played, I thought, a fantastic tournament. Um, he he got himself into the final, had some big, big wins, specifically taking out Taylor Fritz in three sets, uh, beat Daniel Evans in straights, beat Borna George to get there, and pushed uh, number one seed Daniil Medvedev in a tough three-setter, 4-6-6-3-6-2, the victory uh, for the Russian Daniil Medvedev. But after what was a brutal mid to late summer stretch of the season for Denis Shapovalov, he certainly uh, has righted the ship here, making finals in Vienna, also making semis in Japan and finals in Korea. So he's been knocking on the door, playing way, way better tennis. His season had to correct itself at some point. It was so bad, and there's no way to sugarcoat it. It yep. was so abysmal. And he was on track for probably one of his worst seasons as a professional tennis player, uh, to be perfectly honest. If we take out that very early ATP Cup Aussie Open swing there, uh, it was not looking good for Dennis. And he's got too much talent for that to be the case. I mean, we look back to his previous seasons, going all the way back to 2017, he would have some moments that were just amazing. And it was mm -hmm. like, where is that moment? And for him, fortunately, it's late in the season. He's closing 2022, looking terrific. And I just wonder if partly it's um, due to the fact that, you know, his buddy and friend growing up, Felix Ogialiasim, has been playing so well that did that spark another level of competitiveness in him or not wanting to be left out of the conversation in terms of, you know, Who's the man in Canadian tennis? Oh, it's Felix. Always we're talking about Felix. Well, he wants to maybe reinsert himself into that conversation. And although Felix is deservingly so getting the top billing right now, yeah. uh, Dennis is reminding us that he's a very competent, uh, you know, 1A when he's playing his best game. Yeah, and, and look, I, I think with Felix stealing the spotlight... Not that this finals appearance went unnoticed, but it certainly wasn't as talked about. And maybe Denis Shapovalov flying under the radar a little bit when we're not placing these giant expectations on him. And it's fair to do that just when you watch his game and his firepower and how much electricity he plays with. You see the, see the skill set and you can't help but think this guy can do it all. Uh, but now that... You know, the pressure has been off. Grand Slam season is is over and he's kind of past those disappointments. He seems to be playing freely and uh, with a, a good competitive edge. And I'll give full credit, by the way, to Daniil Medvedev from watching that match. Medvedev just hit another gear in the third set. And I thought his third set there in that match was some of the best, probably the best tennis I've seen from him uh, since the front end of the season when he made the finals of the Australian Open. And Medvedev's going into a tournament now, if we look at the Paris Masters draw, a uh, tournament that he's done so well at in the past as well. So he's the fourth seed, and and I think the way he's been playing definitely kind of reinserted himself into our, you know, collective favorites list here, of course. Yep. And um, if we look at Felix's draw, if we look at Dennis's draw, I mean, they're both coming in with such huge confidence right now. Um, I, you know, if we start with Chapeau for a second, it's a very workable first couple matches. I feel like the way he's been playing, potentially a third round against Rafa Nadal. Now, Nadal, correct me if I'm wrong, has never had a 
a win at the Paris Masters or I don't even know if he's played in the finals, I don't think, in the Paris Masters. Usually by this time of the year, you know, his body's taken kind of all it can handle. So I think that's still a very decent section for for Dennis right now. Yeah, I, I think he's in a preferred section. Um, there's a possible road of a Spaniard in the second round, too. Could face uh, Pablo Carreño Busta or Albert Ramos Vinolas. Uh, Carreño Busta has given him some trouble in the past. People remember a couple of U.S. Open battles between those two, a five-setter that went uh, Carreño Busta's way. But certainly the way Shapovalov is playing, he's uh, on a high and, and competing a little harder than uh, PCB right now. But Dennis has beaten Nadal before, I will say, and Nadal is most vulnerable on an indoor hardcourt surface. I think we can all agree upon, and you're right, he hasn't had the success at the Paris Masters. One guy who has been always dominant and pretty comfortable here is is Novak Djokovic, and if we consider maybe the last time we saw Novak play back-to-back tournaments, Israel and Kazakhstan, he won them both, is it fair to say maybe he's the favorite here? So who did you, did you, by the way, did you get your Paris Masters Tennis Canada bracket I, I, challenge picks on time? I got my picks in. My picks are okay, locked me in. me too. So I, I went with Felix is playing so good right now that he just looks unstoppable. So I got Felix in the finals against Djokovic, but I did defer to Djokovic as my tournament champion. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's, that's fair. Um, I, I advanced Felix a ways, but. I thought I saw vintage Medvedev in that third set against Shapovalov and the way he played in Vienna. I feel like this could be uh, a strong finish to his season if he wins the Paris Masters. So I have Medvedev winning it, and I don't want to mention a couple upset picks that I have because uh, one of them already flopped. I had Yannick Sinner going far, and he is already out of the tournament. So we'll forget about that part of the draw, but I have Medvedev winning it all. Are you not going to tell me who you had in the finals against Medvedev? Was it Sinner? Did you pick Sinner to go all the way? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Oh, no. That's a bit oh, of a I mess. Hate- I hate when that happens when you make like, look, you're not going to make all your right picks. Okay. Like nobody gets that, but right. I hate it when you have a pick that you plan to go deep and they flame out early. It's uh I'm sorry. Actually yeah. I did have, I, I, I'm just checking now. No, I actually had Nadal in the final and then I have Medvedev beating Nadal. Uh, so I feel like that's the Homer in you. That's the Nadal Homer in you. Oh, that that might, that might be, but at least, uh, at least he's still in the field and (laughs) center is not. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. Um, Okay. Hey, let's move from that perhaps to the, uh, the WTA finals, which is also going on this week. And uh, I'm just not ready for the women's tennis to be done in terms of, I mean, we do have a Billie Jean King cup coming up, so that'll Mm -hmm. be super exciting. Um, But I always feel like I wish the WTA and ATP kind of, you know, ended at the same time. Um, But here we are with the the top eight women. And I mean, I'll ask you the same thing I asked Pam Shriver, which was if you had gone back at the start of this season and had to pick your top eight, I'm not asking for all of them right now, but who among these final eight surprises you the most in terms of who made it there? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, Probably. I mean, certainly Caroline Garcia, is, is the number one shocking name there. Uh, she had been out of form for a couple of years and has just had this tremendous resurgence. I mean, she has been a former top five player before, so we shouldn't say it's come out of nowhere. She's been capable in the past, but I, I didn't envision her you know, winning a few titles this season, getting to the U.S. Open semifinals and just playing some phenomenal tennis, beating so many great players. Certainly wouldn't have had her in my top eight. Um Daria Kasakina as well, kind of under the radar player. Maybe, you know, Coco Goff 
not a surprise, but we should really give credit to like how steadily she has soared in the rankings to be inside the top five of singles and doubles is, is a phenomenal accomplishment. And I, I think, you know, Zachary Sabalenka might be a couple names that I would, you know, expect to see there, but those are a couple names who have had actually inconsistent seasons. And I, I look beyond Iga, it's sort of been Pagula, Jabur, Goff, who I would say would actually have had stronger years. Yeah, you know, your comments kind of echo mine with Pam Shriver when we were discussing this. And I said, clearly, I think everyone would say Caroline Garcia. Nobody saw that big rise to the top 10 happening again this year. And then uh, Coco Goff, similar to you, not that I'm surprised that she's capable of it or that she's there. I think she's going to be there for a long time now. But uh, I didn't picture this ascension happening so quickly this year. Yeah. And uh, super impressive that she's done it both in singles and doubles. If we're looking at who might dethrone, you know, Iga Sviantek in terms of the the, the consistent number one and, and far and away number one player this year, uh, I mean, that's going to be extremely difficult. But uh I, I, Jessica Pagula has just surprised me, you know, over and over to the point where I should no longer be surprised by what she's done. She's proven mm-hmm. she belongs there. She's been so consistent. And uh, I, I think she's someone that could, uh, you know, definitely cause some trouble here in this tournament. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, maybe she is that that number two name behind Iga Sviantek and just winning Guadalajara, getting that big title. Whereas I feel like for the bulk of the season, she was always getting herself deep in tournaments and a lot of quarterfinals and semifinals. So to win a big WTA 1000, a great confidence boost coming in. And, you know, she landed in the other group, so she doesn't have to deal with Iga in the round robin stage. She's alongside Jabir, Sabalenka, and Zachary. And certainly, if I'm looking at those four na- four names, Pagula is the strongest of the crop right now with the the form she's in. But Pagula played Sviantek four times this season. She lost all four. Now she did get a set in San Diego a few weeks ago, so maybe uh, get a little confidence from that. On the other side, like Spiontek, Goff, Garcia, Kasakina. If you got to take two out of four to come through there, who who do you who do you lean? Oh, geez. Um, well, probably I, Iga. <laughs> I, well, yes. I mean, that's our, that's I got to say that's a that's a given, right? And and I think Coco Goff. I just I'm a real believer now, and um, I just I like the kid so much. You know, we've talked to her in the past on Match Point Canada. Super impressive. Um, didn't quite work out to get her on the pod, unfortunately, this past summer, and I. I feel like our window of getting Coco Goff, I don't want to say his clothes, but I feel like talk about one of the most in-demand tennis players right now. Mm. Um, and certainly in, in North American sports, someone who I think can really bring tennis, you know, back to um, sort of the public consciousness for sporting fans who don't always watch tennis. Um, I think Coco Goff has that type of mass appeal and she's just so super nice. You know, there's no ego yep. there whatsoever. Um, she, she's got a great mind for the history of the sport and what players before her have done. And, uh, yeah, I just, um, she's easy to get behind and, uh, and, and rally behind as a player for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I I will say if someone's going to stop Iga in this tournament, maybe the route is uh, better to happen before the final because we know her incredible record and what she does when she gets to that final match and the number of finals. She did lose one final this this season uh, to Krejcikova in Ostrava, but, uh, you know, those dominant performances in the French Open, U.S. Open, in Italy, Stuttgart, Miami, Indian Wells, uh, Qatar, just it seems like everywhere she was playing a, a phenomenal 
match in the finals. So I'm intrigued that uh, at the group that we do have, you know, it's always possible we'll get a surprise winner. And, you know, Gabby Dabrowski will be alongside Juliana Olmos in doubles. They're certainly not the favorites. That would be Krejcikova, Siniakova, but Dabrowski and Olmos uh, can be very competitive, I think. Yeah, and Gabby's had a, a terrific post-U.S. Open season with uh, multiple titles, yep. uh, finals, with different partners as well, you know, reteaming a little bit there with her previous partner, uh, Luisa Stefani. Uh, but now here clearly with Juliana Olmos, who they played so well this year together. I mean, I feel like you could put Gabby with just, I mean, you and me could team up with Gabby and we'd probably win, you know, a few, <laughs> a few points or a few games here and there. Cause she'd just carry us on her back. So there you go. Um, yeah. All the best to Gabby in that position. And um, you know, we got so much more Canadian content between, I know the end of the year is fast approaching, but we've got Billie Jean King Cup, which you and me are going to preview heavily on our next episode. Mm-hmm. We got Davis Cup a couple weeks after that with a stacked team that, you know, both those teams, women's and men's, I think probably the strongest two teams that Canada's ever had, you could argue. Um, so, you know, lots more good stuff on Matchpoint Canada for the uh, the red and white uh, tennis fans out there. Yeah, season is winding down, but uh, a lot of content ahead. And we'll just say as well, we had the Tevlin Challenger wrap-up from Aviva Center here in Toronto. So congrats to uh, the winner, American Robin Anderson, took it the number one seed, Xu Jiang Jiang, in straight sets to win that title. We didn't really get a deep run from a Canadian, um, but certainly... Uh, to get that experience for Ariana Arsenal, who came through qualifying. She had a couple of good wins. Kayla Cross was there. Uh, I watched as well. Uh, Lane Sleeth, who played a great match and won uh, on the Monday. Sadly, she uh, suffered an injury, so she couldn't continue. But, boy, she covers the court incredibly well. I'm hoping uh, to get a chance to speak with her at some point before the season is out. A lot of good Canadians in action. And, uh, sadly, I think Catherine Seaboff, who had been playing so well, uh, had to pull out as well just ahead of the tournament. Yeah, Seabob was a shoulder injury. I spoke with Ryan Borks on the tournament director, said shoulder and Lane Sleeth. It was COVID related, apparently. So, oh, okay. um, you know, just unfortunate for her because I'd seen her the day before and she looked fine. So maybe it was just something that came on suddenly, Yeah, as the case can be with that. But uh, yeah, it was great to see some of those NCAA Canadian players like Ariane Arsenault, Lane Sleeth uh, up here back on home soil to play. And, uh, you know, I got to chat informally with Kayla Cross, her coach Rob Steckley. Uh, trainer Virginie Tremblay and uh, yeah just you know kind of neat to have those conversations in a small setting in a uh, you know a small little vacuum of uh, hardcore Canadian tennis fans and uh, you know there's few and far between the number of big tournaments we get here so uh, it's always great when you get the chance to catch that live tennis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, For anybody who did see it, there was some awesome tennis played. There's still plenty of tennis ahead. Paris Masters this week, WTA Finals, and more to come on the international stage with the Billie Jean King Cup Finals and Davis Cup as well. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada, guys. We will talk to you next time.